0: invite you please to open up scripture with me in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to read verses 9 through 20. Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 9 through 20. The word of God. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sambolet the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dunk gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins, with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their heads, hands for the good work. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshen, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. That's the word of God. Amen. Let us pray once again. Heavenly Father, what a privilege we have to come before you as a church. And right now we pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon us, that the words of my mouth and the way that your people hear your word would just be pleasing to you that your name would be high and lifted up in this place and that your people would be encouraged through scriptures by your power. We thank you for your grace, for your mercies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our passage today is Nehemiah 2, as we read. And as you can see, the title Arise and Build. And it's taken directly from the text when Nehemiah is gathering the people in Jerusalem to start the work of this Reformation. And arise and build are the words that Nehemiah uses to charge the people for the work of Reformation here. But also the same very words that the people are using to respond back to kind of like demonstrate their commitment to this work. And in our sermon series that we have been going through in the book of Nehemiah, we have just seen how God did place this special burden in the heart of a common man, Nehemiah, for the building of God's kingdom in the world at that time. Nehemiah, though, was in a good position, as we have seen, before the king of Persia, but such position or so-called stability wouldn't be enough or good enough at the expense of seeing God's people in God's city in shame and in ruins. Even though Nehemiah wasn't a prophet or a part of a special lineage, even though he had no extraordinary skills or whatsoever, there was one thing that he could do at that time and that actually all of us can do, whether you're Older or younger, whether you are a new Christian or an old Christian, the one thing that we can do and that we are trying to do here at Faith Baptist Church is to pray. To make ourselves available to be used by the Lord God. To ask the Lord to set in our hearts such a burden for God's kingdom. And that's why you can see every Sunday here, the emphasis from the pastor's, For us to be a praying community and a praying church. Like we saw last week from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, if you're here for four months, Nehemiah was mourning about the reality of God's people in God's city, lamenting before the Lord, seeking the Lord in prayer for a direction. But as we have seen last week. Kind of like a dangerous opportunity arises. The king perceiving his fallen face asked Nehemiah what was wrong and what could be done. And as you might imagine, no king, especially in the presence of, the presence of his queen and his friends, having wine and joy in a party. They don't like to be ruined Or bothered by a sorrowful or sad Jewish cupbearer. At that moment, Nehemiah knew that his life was at stake. But also at that moment, Nehemiah was ready. Not because he had this already figured out infallible plan or something, but because he trusted. He trusted that the good hand of God, like he said, was upon him. And that the Lord himself was in charge of that moment. The end of their conversation was the beginning of Jerusalem's renewed hope. We saw that the king himself, remember a Gentile king, would send Nehemiah back to Jerusalem with his own men and with his own resources in order to start the reformation of a people, not only walls, but a people lying in ruins for long. Nehemiah was though charged to go through the land and pass out these letters signed by the king himself so that all the governors of the regions would be informed that Nehemiah had received permission from the king himself to start this glorious project. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine Nehemiah's heart at this point. After praying for four months, just burdened for the situation in Jerusalem and having nothing that he could do about it. But now he has the king's authority, permission, resources, so that he can go back and do the work that the Lord had put in his heart to do. Have you ever been in a situation where for four months or for a specific amount of time, your entire world was falling apart and you did not know what else to do other than to pray? I'm sure you have felt that way in some level in your Christian life. That's part of actually the DNA of God's people. It wasn't actually the first time that God's people had experienced such a thing in that way. We are reminded in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 that a huge Edomite army was coming to destroy Judah, Jerusalem. And the people of God were helpless at that time. There's nothing they could have done in order to protect themselves from that. But then... The leader, the king of Judah, he has an idea. What is the idea? Let's just go before the Lord. Let's just go before him. Let's just proclaim a fast and let us all people hear. And we are told that men, women, husbands, wives, children, widows, priests, carpenters, poor, rich, young, old people, all of them, they stood before the Lord in prayer. Crying out. And they said. We are powerless against this great army. That is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But. Our eyes are fixed. On you. You are. Our hope. And all of a sudden. The entire situation changed. In a moment. The Lord came to them. And they didn't need any strategy or power or program or solution made by themselves. The Lord said, you will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. And see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Just see what the Lord is going to do about Church, God and God alone. As like making wine out of water again. Brought a solution, not because of his people, but for his name's sake. That's the same here in the book of Nehemiah. And I'm sure, Christian, that you have experienced something similar. Maybe not in terms of a national scale like this, but in your very personal life. Maybe all of a sudden you see doors are opened, ways are enlarged, reports come good. In situations like this, we know there's just this intensity of joy, of gratitude, of hope, of peace, of calmness, of trust, of security. It seems like all of a sudden you're ready to do anything now. You're just ready To give it back to the Lord. To put yourself available to be worked by the Lord. And to work for the Lord. You're so willing to do something that you actually cannot wait. You have to. You have to start doing something. You want to serve the Lord so bad. Out of gratitude in your heart. For all that He is. And for all that He has done. I remember brothers and sisters. Three years ago. The Lord had said in our hearts as a family for us to pursue more training in the pastoral ministry. And I was already a pastor in Brazil since 2016, a pastor of Baptist Church in Brazil. But I was never able to be a full-time minister. And in our local church, we never had a pastor before. The only pastor that we had, he had some huge problems personally and he was with us for only a year, and he went back to his city, to his state, and the church was kind of like abandoned. What do we do now? What do we do now? We have no pastor. I was only in seminary, so the church looked at me, and I looked at the church, and they were like, could you be our pastor? I was like, I was already teaching, and leading service or trying to do some counseling or evangelism or discipleship since the time that I joined the church back in 2013 but to be a pastor officially is totally different right and I was like I always had this desire in my heart maybe because increasingly year after year after year of working and pursuing the Lord just seeing how much the call is great and how difficult it is just to do it by yourself I was like, I need some more training, not necessarily seminary training, but uh, I need training. I need to be close to a more seasoned pastor. I need to grow in the Lord so that I can serve God's people better. So the Lord put in our hearts the desire to come here to the States. I was already doing my master's of theology at Puritan Seminary in Brazil, and they offered me a scholarship for a doctorate. I was like, no, not really, not really. I don't think I am I have the capacity or the ability to do a doctorate right now. And I'm still young. I just need more ministry training. So I try to come here with my family. We applied for visits. And Sabrina and I, we had visas already. We had already been here in the States. But our kids didn't. So we applied for the visas. And we thought, oh. That's pretty easy, right? That's more like an automatic process because there are kids. We are we have visas. Oh no. Oh no. We applied three times and we got the kids actually got denied three times for the tourist visa. And we were like, what's going on? Do we do you want us to come to the States and leave our children behind? Like, what's the point? So I emailed the seminary again, and they told us. We told you, why don't you go for a doctorate? Here's a scholarship for you that we offered you. You had a great GPA in your class. So just try the student visa, and we did it. And for the first time ever, you're approved. Now, before, we are coming only for six months. And now they approved us and our kids to come for four years total. That's the way the Lord worked. And I remember when, when we got the news of the visas approved and like now we can have the opportunity as a family to engage more and now I can definitely have time just to be trained and to pursue more training in the pastoral ministry. So we went to Holland, the Ventura Baptist Church, and I was there for an internship. And they were like, it's kind of odd. You're a pastor already, but you're pursuing an internship? What's going on? And I told Oh, you know nothing about ministry in Brazil. I was working just full-time, and I need this, please. And they willingly offered that to me. But I remember, brothers, this was the time that I was just so excited, so ready, so, ready to do something for the Lord and to learn more and just to engage and to be better trained. That was the adventure that we are now here. And like the Lord put our family in this adventure, Nehemiah is going his adventure, what the Lord is leading him to do. The trip itself, all the way from Persia to Jerusalem, would take him. Probably another month. Can you imagine just the expectation like, I just want to be there so bad. I want to start doing this. But then you have to travel for a month to get to Jerusalem. But not only that, scholars have been saying that a trip like this, considering what we just saw in the text, that they had to stop by every governor to give the king's letters that would take them just another two months. So a three-month at least trip period in total. Can you imagine Nehemiah's heart at this point? Surely he's making all kinds of plans in his head about what to do and how to use the almost endless resources that were given to him by the king. You can do anything. What are you going to do? Surely he cannot wait to get to Jerusalem and share all the news of his people that were mourning and sad and ruins so that they might rejoice as well. Not only that, but surely Nehemiah, especially now having the king's letters, which means his authority and resources, he would not expect any kind of opposition, right? Right? For think through this, if the most important, the most tough, the most powerful person on planet earth at that time had his heart already moved and touched by the Lord, what could go wrong? Who can stop them? Right? Just get in Jerusalem. Get there and start working as soon as possible. Just do it. Right? Well, that's not really how the story goes, right? Is it? On the contrary, the first piece of information that we are told here is that while Nehemiah is going from governor to governor, from city to city, presenting the king's letters, there's a couple of important people very upset about what's happening. Verse number 10, we read, that Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had to come had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Sambalat and Tobiah's servant, probably governors in the region, didn't like the idea at all. Actually, we are here being introduced about a big ethnical conflict that had its implications all the way to the first century, during the time of Jesus, which we know is the problem of the Jews versus the Samaritans, or the half-Jews versus the real Jews, or something like that. This kind of conflict happened earlier with Ezra himself, with Tobiah himself, in Ezra chapter 2, verse sixty. Here in Nehemiah, it's later developed for us by the end of our chapter, verses 19 through 20, that we have read already. But also throughout the book of Nehemiah, there's this conflict, this opposition against the work that they are supposed to do. But now it's, it is just enough for us to paint the picture that there's going to be this opposition. They do not want to see the welfare of Israel because they're jealous about Israel. And they're jealous about not being able to engage and participate in the way that they wanted in a restoration like this. Of course, the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people is never asleep, you see? Not for our surprise, God's physical, whether it's a a temptation in the emotional level, the spiritual level, or an issue, physical. Sometimes all of that at the same time. Physical, emotional, spiritual. We are told of it throughout scriptures. We are to expect that. The Apostle James says in his letter, Brothers, count of all joy. Joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, the Apostle Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or even in Philippians, he says, The Apostle Paul, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. That's a gift. Just like we have received the gift of faith, we have received the gift of suffering. What kind of gift is that, right? Or as Jesus himself in John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation. And what does Nehemiah do? Did he argue with them? Did he show them the king's letters again? Did he say anything at all for them right now? Nope. We are not informed of a single word of Nehemiah for them at this time. He's silent. And he's silently going to Jerusalem. And what is most surprising is that he plans to arrive in Jerusalem to be there for the initial three days, very discreetly, silent. He was decided, verse 12 says, that he would not tell anyone about what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. He's completely silent about it. Whether with his enemies or his friends, he's keeping all these things in his heart. I can only imagine after the project had started, people were asking Lehemiah, what happened? Like you were here for three days and you were not even communicating to us. Why didn't you tell us about this project, these letters, these resources of the good hand of God upon you earlier? So that we could have started the project earlier. You told us that you were burdened for this. And we were burdened here, sorrowful, in ruins. I can only imagine Nehemiah responding, Oh dear, this project has already started before we started actually building the walls. This project started first in the Lord's heart. This project had already started in my heart many months ago in prayer. The project is already going on. And before any action took place, Nehemiah had to inspect the walls himself. He needed to make sure the reports that he got while in Persia matched the city destruction and the people's situation. Not because he didn't trust the report, but because he needed to engage personally with this. Verse 17, Nehemiah is going back to the people, and for the first time, he is proclaiming, declaring, revealing the plans that the Lord had put in his heart. And he says to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. It's interesting the way that Nehemiah presents his report now of the situation of the city, the walls, and the people. Verse 17, the word here in Hebrew for see and the word for bad. You see the bad situation that we are here in. The word for see and the word for bad have the same pronunciation in Hebrew. That's interesting. And we have this in English, and you know better than I, right? We have words like this in English. When you say, I'm gonna buy a car, and I'm gonna say buy. Different words, same pronunciation, right? That's not helpful for me coming from Brazil. Sorry about (laughs) it. Or when you say, I'm gonna sell my car, and I'm gonna put you on sell, a place, a prison. Different words, same pronunciation. Or when you say, we are here, and you ought to hear. Same pronunciation, different words. What Nehemiah is doing here just so beautifully, is reporting something in sounding like this. You see the bed that we are in. I know that, and now, now I can see that. And you see it as well. He he has been preparing himself in his heart for the good work that was before him in prayer. And now he is doing this through observation, through inspection, before rushing to do the actual work. He is just inspecting, preparing, observing, checking the situation. Actually, that reminds me of the words of A person that you know better than I as well. Maybe not in person, but, you know, as Americans, Abraham Lincoln, the president. And he has this famous quote that was attributed to him. He said this, if I had six hours to chop down a tree, I would spend the first four hours sharpening my axe. If I had six hours to chop down a tree, I would spend my first four hours just sharpening my axe. And here's another word, axe and axe, right? This is actually, brothers and sisters, the central point of our passage. Not Abraham Lincoln's words, but the point. We are told that Nehemiah is intentionally not sharing with anyone what God has put in his heart. Not only in verse 12, but also as we read in verse 16. Verse 16 says, And the officials did not know where I had gone and what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of who were to do the work. He was not sharing anything up to this point. Actually, while I was studying for the sermon, carefully trying to analyze the passage that we have before us, I just realized how the, the very structure of this passage, verses 9 through 20, verse 16, is the central verse here. And if that's okay, I would like to show you the structure, even in the slide so that you, you can see this a bit better This is called the structure in chiasm. So you see, we have the king's authorization and the rise of opposition beginning with the text. And by the end of the text, what we have, again, we have the rise of opposition and the king's authorization. Then we have letter B, verses 11 through 15. Nehemiah, rise up to inspect the walls. And then we have letter B again. The people rise up to rebuild the walls. It's all communicating the same thing in different ways. But then we have verse 16, a single verse by itself in the middle of the passage, showing us that's the center of the passage. What is a chiasm? Really, it's just a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. That's the way ancient people, especially Hebrew, used to communicate certain truths in a way that's not very familiar to the way that we communicate in in our time. We are more influenced by Greek mind or Roman mind, where we have a very straight and objective way of communicating from A to B to C to D, and that's it. The Hebrew mind goes all the way like this. We go from A to B to C, and then we go back to B and to A. So in that way, what we have in the middle of the passage is the most important part of this passage. If I'm speaking Hebrew here, try to think about this in a way of a sandwich. What's the most important part of a Big Mac? The meat. It's in the middle. So we have the bun, A and A, unless you're vegan or something, I don't know. (laughs) You have tomatoes sometimes, cheese, but that's not really what you're buying this, right? You are expecting the meat. Verse 16 is our meat this morning. But the question now is, why? Why is verse 16 the central piece? What is verse 16 communicating, meaning to us? As the title that we should... Rework here this morning, not only arise and build, because we are not seeing any rise up and building here. We are going to see this in chapter 3 and on. Really what we could call this passage and this sermon this morning is this title. Arise and build in a long-suffering reformation. Brothers and sisters, my point here this morning is that Before, before the work of rebuilding, before the work of reformation starts, there's just this long-suffering heart working before any action takes place. I told you our story about coming to the U.S. and once we got here in the U.S. and and at Ventura Baptist Church, starting the internship, starting the doctorate program. I was like, I'm so excited. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. What, 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 what is my responsibility? What are you going to give me to read or something? What are my first tasks? The pastor just told me this. I have a few books here for you to read. And the first one you're going to read, I was like, yes, what one? What, what? He was like, it's a book called A Praying Life. And I was like, yes, yes, we should always start with prayer. Even though it is very good and it is necessary that we put ourselves to work, the most important part of our work is praying. That's why the ancient Christians used to say this Latin word saying, Ora et labora. Pray and work at the same time. We came here, and as I see the passage before us, that's the kind of work that the Lord is calling us to do right now. But I mean, why why long-suffering? In which ways you're seeing long-suffering here in this passage, Kate? Nehemiah is just keeping things in his heart. First, he has been praying for months down the road. He has really been carrying the burden, suffering for God's name, suffering for God's people. And when the opportunity came, he was ready, but he didn't put the guard down. His long-suffering enabled him to be watchful in the moment that we are now. His long-suffering enabled him to be discerning, His long-suffering enabled him to be zealous. His long-suffering enabled him to suffer well and to endure opposition when it came. His long-suffering enabled him to not rush into things, maybe too excited, but to wait for the right time, for God's time. His long-suffering enabled him to put his trust in the Lord, not in the king's letters, not in the king's army, not in the governor's willingness, not even in the people's excitement. He kept it in secret in order to guard his heart for the process of reformation. And it just reminds me of Mary, the mother of Jesus. As we are told in Luke chapter 2 that... While she was seeing all that was happening in Jesus' life in a young age, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That's what Nehemiah is doing. Brothers and sisters, how much of our lives, acts, plans, decisions are being made considering God, considering His Word? considering that in prayer. When we look at the times that we are living in, I just mentioned a Big Mac in a sermon, a fast food era. When was the last time that you stopped to treasure God in your heart? When was the last time that while working, you were thinking about the reality of God and you broke down in tears? When was the last time when you were disciplining your kids and you just had to stop due to their behavior or something? You know, just had to go to your bedroom and begin to pray for them. When was the last time you talked about Jesus with your family, or friends with excitement, but also with a holy, cautious fear? When was the last time when you, like Nehemiah, had only a small window in a conversation or before a big decision? And you fixed your eyes on God, surrendering all to the Lord? When was the last time, maybe when you figured out, yes, Lord, I really can do nothing apart from you? When was the last time you felt burdened about your situation before the Lord spiritually? Or about your children's situation before the Lord? Or about the church's situation before the Lord? When was the last time that you, not on cruise mode, not in church, and not only before sleeping or waking up, you sincerely approached the throne of God in prayer, saying, Lord, I'm here? Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that Nehemiah's silence was caused by this unsilenced, presence and burden of the Lord that was in his heart. The word of God was so loud inside his bones that like Nehemiah said, like Jeremiah said, we could not think or say anything else. How prone we are to be quick to speak, right? To decide, to act, to react, which make us susceptible to go to extremes. Think about a reformation. Think about a revitalization situation. We could be very quick to say, let's change everything. Let's just change this. Let's just move this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Or think about the other extreme. Let's not do anything. Let's just keep things as they are. Sometimes it just shows us how we are trying to build the kingdom of God in our lives, in our image, in our likeness, not in the word of God. We have to be able to learn how to appreciate how things that are good should be continued, but also how we have to be honest and recognize things that need to be changed. If we do not learn long-suffering, we will never learn what the Apostle James told us, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We'll never learn that long-suffering or patience is not something that you are called just to do. It's a gift to you. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not only a matter of like, okay, I'm going to try harder this time to be patient. It's given to you. And Nehemiah had received this That's why he was able to kept his mouth shut for three days because he was discerning, preparing, observing, waiting for the right time, for the right way, in the right situation. It's a, we need the supernatural gift of the Spirit for us. Or let's say how Nehemiah reacted to the opposition in verses 19 through 20. Look at this. Verse 19. Sambalai the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant. Geshem the Arab. Heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? If you were Nehemiah, what would you say? No? I have the king's letters. Don't you see? Is that his response in verse 20? No. Verse 20, he says, Then I replied, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. He's showing them, not the letters from the king of Persia, he's showing them the letters of the king, the almighty, the king of heaven, that he will make them prosper. Hudson Taylor, a missionary, To China, a couple centuries ago he said that God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. But to have God's supply, you have to do God's way. You have to do God's way, not your own way. Let me finish with some applications for us. If you're not a believer here, there's Every reason for you to be afraid now. But the Lord God, through the person of His Son, is calling you to come to Him. And allow Him to do the work of reformation in your life that only He can do. And that you have seen that you can't. But if you're a believer here this morning, and maybe you're just struggling with suffering for a long time. And you're like, I can't take this anymore. Really, I can't. It's just been a lot. Through the power of the Word of God, I want to tell you, embrace your suffering and keep going. Hold your position and see what the Lord is going to do about it. Maybe you're saying, but Lord, that's enough. I don't know what else to do. Keep going. Keep pushing. The initial opposition prepared Nehemiah for the work that was before him. So don't waste your suffering this morning. Suffer as... A child of God. Arise and build. Do the good work. But first acknowledge that this good work is only able to be performed by God himself. And he's doing this in your life. Have you noticed in the last sermon, the last passage, verses 1 through 8, how many times the word king was mentioned? I challenge you to do this when you go get home. Just read verses 1 through 8 and check how many times the word king was mentioned. We have 8 verses and the word king was mentioned 15 times. What is it telling us? It's telling us that right now in the passage that we are in, the focus is not in the king of Persia. It is in the king of heavens. And he is the one that is giving you authority, resources, and strength to do the work that you are about to do. But if you're here and you're a believer, but you're just look warm, double-minded, I want to tell you as we wrap up that the Lord is still waiting for you. You know better than anyone that there are still areas in your life that need change you know how you were a praying man, a praying woman years ago. You know how your heart just felt the Lord greater before, but now you're just not feeling anything. You're not worried about it. I want to tell you that the Lord, He has long suffering, the perfect one. He is the one that spared Adam. He is the one that had patience with the days of Noah. He was the one that waited for the Canaanites to fulfill the whole measure of their sin. He was the one that waited for the people of Israel to just walk 40 years in the desert. He is the God that Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, lowless, but he is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish. The patient of the Lord is our salvation. Do not presume on the riches of God's kindness and grace. I pray that you would be able to just see How we are called to present ourselves before the Lord for this work of reformation, both in our lives, but in this local church that we are called by the Lord to do. And the resources, the authority, the ability will all come from him, but only if we trust his ways, not ours. And I pray that you would do this for your life as well. Let us pray. Father, help us. Help us to trust You. Help us to come before You. Help us to trust and rely on the Spirit. Help us to lean not in our own understanding and wisdom, but to rely on You. Whether for the work of our lives, for our jobs, for raising our kids, whether for pastoring a church, whether for doing anything, that we would rely on You. With long suffering, discerning, preparing our hearts. That's the name the name of Jesus that we pray.